So we are uh, in the beginning of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ through John. And I'd like to begin with a little bit of summary to make sure we're all up to speed. We began this series last Sunday morning. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one doing the revealing to John. Written from exile, John's in exile on the island of Patmos. This is near the end of the first century, maybe 65 to 70 years after Jesus preached, suffered, died, and rose again. There are seven letters to churches in Asia Minor. These letters are addressed to the angels of these churches. And we're working under the assumption that the angel of each church being addressed is the spirit of the church. The spirit is, it's more than reputation. It's, it's the feeling, it's what all of these different things coming together combine that folks sense when they attend or are a part of this church. The fact that there are seven churches selected and seven letters written is a hint that these letters are written for everyone because seven is the scriptural number for fullness and completeness. And so because of that, we think seven letters, seven churches, it's for all the churches. Last week, we unpacked the letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus, which was identified as a spirit of boundary keeping. When boundary keeping becomes a primary function of the church, it is likely that passion for the mission and love for others dwindles. Yes, we want correct theology and correct disciplines, but we remember the Old Testament passages that talk about God's love for mercy above sacrifices. And we remember that Jesus loved us and died for us while we were still sinners. And we can't forget Jesus' call to Matthew, who was a tax collector, and the way Jesus identified with sinners in order to bring them the healing message of the gospel. When the church's primary focus is boundary keeping, the mission and passion for it are endangered. We take time to hear these letters because we do believe they are written to us. And so we must inspect our Christian practices to be certain we haven't been led astray by any of these deadly spirits that conspire to lead the church into chaos, fruitlessness, and discouragement. So the next letter, the next town to be discussed is Smyrna, Smyrna. Revelation two, beginning in verse eight. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Smyrna is a city 
that was rebuilt from the ashes. It had been destroyed by previous conquerors and had been rebuilt by Rome after being desolate for many years. It was situated next to a deep harbor and was consequently, it became consequently, a very wealthy trading town. At the time that John's writing, Smyrna was known in the common vernacular as the town that died and yet lives. You can sort of hear the echo of that slogan in the way John addresses this letter, the letter from one who died and yet lives. There's an affinity between these two. The relationship between Rome and Smyrna was cemented 200 years before Christ when the citizens of Smyrna stood with Rome in the struggle to control that territory. Consequently, the first temple to the goddess Roma was built in Smyrna. And later, Smyrna was honored by, giving, by being given the right to build a temple in honor of the emperor Tiberius, who proclaimed himself to be divine. To the minds of the citizens of Smyrna, allegiance was owed to the goddess Roma and to the deities of the Roman Empire because they were responsible for making Smyrna a major city again. And because of this, Smyrna became the site, a major site of the worship of the Roman gods and especially of the emperor. That left the church in Smyrna facing two very significant obstacles. First of all, the worship of the empire and the emperor were woven into the very fabric of life here. It became the practice of citizens every year to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the emperor. And once they did that, they were given a certificate stating that they had done their civic duty for the year. Now this pinch of incense being burnt was more of a political statement than it was a religious statement, but it was certainly religious as well. Imagine the neighbors of those Christians from Smyrna, Smyrna who observed that those Christians had not burned their pinch of incense. What were the neighbors thinking given the way life in Smyrna worked? Where's your sense of gratitude to Rome for all that it's done for us? Why aren't you being patriotic? Do you even understand how important Rome is to the city of Smyrna? Your rebellious thinking could mess things up for all of us. This is exactly the kind of stuff that was going on in the minds of the neighbors of Christians living in Smyrna. It's hard, it's hard to figure out what that might feel like, but let, you know, maybe this is sort of like a modern equivalent to it. You remember a few years ago when certain NFL players refused to stand for the singing of the national anthem? I mean, what happened in the culture? Chaos, right? Accusations that the play players were unpatriotic. Charges that the players were using their positions to make political statements. Calls for firing of players that refused to stand. 
I mean, why is standing to pledge allegiance to the American flag so important to us in America? I mean, we would say that to dishonor the flag is to dishonor the nation. We would say that to dishonor the flag is to disrespect those who fought for the freedoms that we enjoy. We would say that to dishonor the flag is to devalue the principles the, nature, the nation was founded upon. Now, standing to salute the flag may, in some people's opinion, feel like a quasi-religious exercise, but when we salute the flag, we're not pretending that, that there's a God involved in that. We don't deify our leaders. We don't make our leaders into God. It's not a religious thing. It is strictly political. It is strictly social. It wasn't exactly the same for Smyrna. Though burning the pinch of incense might have been sort of like saluting the flag for these folks, the problem was they were doing it on the altar of the emperor who proclaimed himself God, right? And all of the influences and feelings and, and sensitivities around that were involved. Christians in Smyrna, for the most part, were not incense burners. And this caused conflict, not just with the Romans though, but with other citizens of Smyrna. In fact, you probably know that the Jews enjoyed a special relationship with Rome. They were exempted from emperor worship, and so they didn't have to do the same thing. And the conflict that arose in Smyrna was the Jews worried about these Christians who are already getting some social censuring, they make it really clear they're not us. In many cities, the Christians worshiped along with the Jews in the synagogue, not in Smyrna. You guys are something else. And, and the Jews want nothing to do with these outcast Christians because they don't want their privileged status from Rome being lost. And so the Christians are getting disrespected by the Jews and everyone else. They've found themselves by themselves. I mean, you could say it's a small matter to burn a pinch of incense on the altar, especially when you start to think of the other implications of it. You see, if you don't burn the pinch of incense, you haven't done your civic duty, and consequently, no one in town wants to do business with you. Now this becomes a different issue all of a sudden. In the minds of the other citizens, in order to be virtuous, you had to be prosperous. You had to go along. You had to play the game, the accepted social game, in order to be seen as being prosperous. Wealth was tied to doing the socially accepted thing. And hey, why not cut a few corners here and there in order to enjoy the kind of wealth that makes a person comfortable? You understand the term when I talk about, about visible wealth as a tool? I mean, you probably know that there are, um, there are some professions perhaps where displaying your wealth is a marketing tool to get additional business, right? If you're a lawyer, you have to dress in a certain way, drive a certain kind of car, 
to essentially prove to those watching that you are a good lawyer. So you flaunt your wealth in order to attract business. If you are a celebrity, your clothes matter a great deal. If you watch any award show on television, the red carpet's rolled out and, and the big conversation is who's wearing what? And wearing what gets you noticed and getting noticed is what gets you additional parts and increases your business and your popularity. I, I kind of suspect that the kind of shoes you wear in high school matters a great deal. When I see the amount of money that folks pay on particular brands of sneakers. I mean, I remember the kinds of sneakers my father bought for me when I was in high school. And even back then, he was graciously willing to shell out a few extra dollars for a pair of Adidas for me. Because for some reason, we've decided that shoes say something about our reputation, about who we are. So, so what makes for real, a good lawyer or a real good celebrity or a good high school student, it's, it's not what you own. It's not what you're wearing. It's, it's more about what's inside of you, right? John would say, wealth is no indicator of spiritual vitality and neither is poverty. What's true of individuals? Is it true of churches as well? I mean, what makes a good church? Is, is wealth an indicator that the church is good? Is, it, is poverty an, an indication that the church is good? If you read the letter, it's really clear that what Christ is saying is Smyrna is a very good church. Yes, they're suffering. Yes, they are poor and in poverty. And yes, some of them are going to suffer even to the point of death. And you may look at that and say, hmm, suffering, poverty, death, that is not the lifestyle I'm choosing. I'm going to choose something different. And the, and the choice they're making in part hinges on a tiny little pinch of incense, tiny little compromise, just a tiny, just a little bit and you know, just, just to get ahead, just to get what I need, just to, to, to build a reputation of competence through wealth or possessions so that I can be comfortable. And when Christ speaks to the church of Smyrna, he doesn't have anything to say about all that wealth, materialism. All he has to say is Smyrna, Good job, looking good, poor, poverty-stricken, suffering. Because material things are not the measure of anything in the kingdom of God. No matter how the world evaluates the church of Smyrna, they are headed for the crown of victory. A successful church isn't the church that has the best website, the best band, the best program, the best preacher. We're in luck there. You don't have the best preacher. A successful church is one that is passionate about Jesus Christ and unwilling to compromise in order to gain wealth or status or reputation or any other things. Scott Daniels says, 
that one of the greatest dangers in the church to the church today is the spirit of consumerism. The spirit that would say, it's okay to cut a little corner here and there so that you can present an image that increases your reputation. It is the desire to cut corners, to wink at compromise, all in order to create a successful church in the eyes of the community at large that will kill the church. In reality, the church's job is to call people to discipleship, which is a costly endeavor. The tendency in the American church, it seems, is to create programs that satisfy every need of every person and every family in the community. And while it is important to reach out to people, if we're going to continually exhaust ourselves trying to meet every felt need of every person in our community, we will have difficulty calling people to pick up crosses and to serve him because effective discipleship calls people to deny themselves. Have you heard those phrases before? Deny yourself, not indulge yourself, and deny yourself, and pick up crosses. And so the church that Jesus died to create is the church of folks who will follow him, who will deny themselves, who will be willing to endure suffering so that the gospel can be proclaimed everywhere to everyone. I think the reason this passage is hard for us to hear is that few of us, very few of us live in true poverty. And most of us haven't suffered for our faith the way the folks in Smyrna did. Our lives are different in part because of the kind of country we live in and we are grateful for that. The freedoms we have today are a great blessing. But I wonder from time to time, have the freedoms that we have made it easier for us to witness for Christ and call people to discipleship? I mean, if our freedoms made it easier to stand for Christ, why isn't every Christian doing it? Why has the church fallen on such difficult times? Perhaps the culture that surrounds us expects everything to be made easy for them. And the minute anyone asks for commitment or investment or labor, they run away in horror at the imposition of it all. Are we so prosperous, so pampered, that we will not allow ourselves to be inconvenienced by the demands of Christ? I mean, what is the true cost? What is the true cost of our prosperity? Is there still time for Christian fellowship in our lives? Is there still time to meet together with Christians for prayer? Is there still time to care for the needy? Is there still time to take a meal to the sick or to visit those who are missing or to express 
Christian concern? Or are we just too tired from the work week to express our Christianity in ways that was in ways that were normal for the church in Smyrna? Is the spirit of consumerism sucking the life out of us? Or are we, or are we willing to embrace poverty and suffering? Are we willing to give are all to pick up crosses that Christ invites us to bear. Verse 11 summarizes it for us. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. I wish I could tell you that the work of the kingdom was always a, war, a walk in the park. But buried beneath this text is the number 10. Did you catch it in there? Some of you may suffer for 10 days. And commentators think this number 10 is a significant number. They said if, if the number 40 had been used, it would be a, a sign of a hard trial, but one that would end after 40 days. 40 days in the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness, the 40 days Jesus fasted, the 40 days of rain. Those are all events that started and stopped, and then there was reconciliation, good things after that, right? But, but commentators think 10 days is a salute to the fact that Roman justice was swift and stingy. And because they didn't want to pay for food for prisoners, if you were arrested for something, they could have a trial and execute you within 10 days. And that way they didn't have to maintain prisons and all this kind of stuff. It kept the overhead low. So 10 days stands for a speedy trial and death. And so you look at what Jesus is saying to Smyrna and you say, he's saying that for some of you, this persecution is going to cost you your life. But he says, be faithful. Because those who are faithful to the end have no fear of the second death or eternal death. But they will receive the victor's crown of life. He promises life to those who are faithful. We may not be asked to endure martyrdom for the sake of Christ. But what about the things that Christ does call you to do? And what about the crosses we are invited to pick up? And what about the inconveniences? Are we suffering under the delusions of a spirit of consumerism that tells us everything in our life should be smooth, convenient, easy, and comfortable? Or should we anticipate having to pick up some crosses? You understand a cross is not just an inconvenience, right? If, if heaven forbid you get a diagnosis of cancer when you're at the doctor's, 
That's not a cross. That isn't something you had any choice in the matter about. Cross-bearing is always a rational, logical choice that you make, where Christ offers you an opportunity to do something and you choose to agree and do it. And cross-bearing is an activity that leads only one direction, right? No one carries the cross to the destination and then carries it back again. All cross-bearing leads to Calvary and leads to death. The symbol of cross-bearing is saying, whatever, Lord, it's a complete commitment. It's a willingness to do the will of God, whatever it is he asks us to do. I don't know what it is he's asking you to do. I kind of think, though, that if you get the opportunity to teach at VBS, that's a lot easier than cross-bearing, right? There's a whole range of things that Christ may call us to do. And once you've decided that you are willing to pick up crosses, anything else he asks is relatively easy after that, right? You're getting light duty if all he's asking you to do is teach a Sunday school class or all he's asking you to do is pick someone up and bring them to church. Or those, are, those are kind of small compared to picking up crosses. The spirit of the church of Smyrna is the spirit of faithful service. May God bless us with that spirit. That whatever Christ calls us to do, we will say, yes, Lord. When God calls us to jump, we will say, how high? Whatever it is he invites us to do, we're all in because we have been so richly blessed by him. We have this amazing new life that he's given to us. We have been blessed beyond our ability to enumerate. And so we say, Lord, whatever, I'm in. Count on me. I'll be your faithful servant. Book of Revelation is all about recognizing that the harder things get for us, the more we have the need to worship. I'm going to ask Sue to come to the piano and invite you to join with me in singing a closing song of worship. Worshiping God for who he is because he has revealed himself to us and asking him by his spirit to help us build the reputation of faithful service so that we can honor and glorify him. Pray with me and then we'll sing. Father, help us to be your people regardless of the cost. Enable us, Lord Jesus, to represent you faithfully to all those we encounter. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. Would you stand with me while we sing? the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is He. Sing 
a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is he. song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, blessing and honor, strength and glory and power be to you, the only wise King. Is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power, breath and living water, such a marvelous mystery. who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. One more time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. Heavenly Father, you are holy. You deserve our praise. We are grateful to be your children. May our lives honor you in every way. And now may God himself fill you with his spirit so that you are faithful to him in every circumstances. To the glory of God now and always. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.